0: Well, I almost said turning your Bibles to Second Samuel, but we're no longer in the Old Testament. Uh, as our pattern would have it, uh, we move back and forth between old and new. So often, uh, every 12, 13, however many weeks, uh, we will make a, a, a shift uh, to a different genre. So now we are in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, and we will be uh, up through and maybe a little bit beyond uh, Easter into April. A little trivia as we uh, start... Uh, this sermon series. Uh, who uh, wrote the most of the New Testament? Albie family excluded, sorry. Uh, we, just, we just covered this. I, I do trivia all the time at our house. So what? who wrote the most of the New Testament? Anyone want to venture a guess? Well, that's a very good guess, Marilyn. Most people, I would t- typically have them set me up for, oh, it's the Apostle Paul. And that would be true that Paul wrote more of the books of the New Testament than anyone else, but sheer volume, Luke is the one who wrote the most because it's a two volume thing. There's the Gospel of Luke, and then there's what he refers to as, as Volume 1. And, uh, and then later there's Volume 2, if you will, uh, which is the book of Acts. And he writes that the primary audience uh, is. Um, well, the author, Luke, to, uh, to remind us, is, uh, is a historian. Uh, he's a follower of Christ. Uh, Colossians 4 refers to him as a physician. We know that he was a, a companion of the Apostle Paul, which meant he had a lot to do as a physician because Paul uh, oftentimes uh, needed that help. He's also a well-researched historian. He writes to uh, one whose name, if you go back to Luke 1, who is Theophilus, who was someone we don't exactly know. He presumably, uh, we know he's a Gentile, but presumably he is a man of influence and uh, a leader of some social standing, um, perhaps likely a Roman official. He's referred to as most excellent Theophilus, as Luke writes to him. He's trying to reinforce for him that uh, the bible god's word uh, opens itself up to questions and to doubts and he is addressing that to build up uh, a matter a degree of certainty that theophilus uh, would have that's true faith comes by hearing so I'm glad you're here uh, i hope that uh, i hope that you're going to hear i hope that we're going to hear god's voice from his word now uh, there's a Scotsman uh, whose name's George MacDonald, a 19th century writer and poet. He's better known. He was a minister, uh, wasn't a very good minister, and, and and definitely not a very good theologian, in my opinion, uh, for a few different reasons. Wonderful writer, uh, fabulous uh, poet, and uh, I've quoted him even uh, this past fall. Uh, he has. Uh, he's one who. It was a predecessor and it was an influencer on the likes of people like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. And uh, he wrote uh, children's uh, literature and fantasies. One of uh, my favorite Scotsman, Sinclair Ferguson, who is shaped, who's one, of my, one of my professors, who has uh, who shaped a, a lot of my understanding of this portion of God's word in this sermon. Uh, he tells a story uh, from George MacDonald's fantasy called The Golden Key. Now, I have, some of you know, uh, you know, a vested interest in keys. Uh, but this one, this particular fantasy, this children's story, is, is interesting to me, but in the reverse, because it's not the keys that are missing. Uh, it's the lock. It's the keyhole. And so there are two main characters in the fantasy in this particular children's story, and uh, one of them is named Tangle, and, uh, and in the journey to find this 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 keyhole, this passageway with the, the golden key that they possess, uh, she comes across this mythical figure who's known as the old man of the earth. And the old man of the earth says, well, you'll need to talk to my brother, uh, the old man of the sea. And the old man of the sea says, well, you're going to need to go and see uh, the old man of fire. And uh, he says, well, 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 guide me there. I don't know. And so the old man of old man fire, he says, well, we need to go into this cave. And so Tangle, she walks with uh, this figure and he opens up in the middle of a cave a hole, And as he stands there with the stone that's usually over the hole, leaned up against the side, he says, well, that's the way. And it's just a hole that's just plumb straight down. I'm assuming it was dark. And, and then Tangle says, well, but there's no stairs. Uh, and, uh, and that's when uh, the old man of the earth says, well, there are no stairs. You must throw yourself in it. There is no other way. Now, why do I raise that story? Well, I'll I'll tell you. You just got to hang on. Just put your mental note uh, on that spot. We'll come back to it. By the way, Tangle did make a wise choice and things did turn out okay. Uh, But I raise it in in part because I think that there's uh, an analogy that we'll come to later. Now, where we are in Luke's gospel is kind of a pause because we were kind of building up to and we will be in the weeks ahead uh, from chapter 17 on to the end of, of 24, seeing where Jesus goes in his uh, journey to Jerusalem, his death, his resurrection. But right now it seems as if there's a pause and there's some proverbial wisdom and instruction that he wants his disciples uh, to hear and to lay hold of. Luke records it for us, for Theophilus, for us. But Jesus is the one speaking and we're overhearing this. So let me invite you in deference to God's word to hear Jesus' words here. This is Luke chapter 17. Uh, someone tell us what page it's on in the Pew Bible, if you don't mind. Thank you, Connor, for standing up. The rest of you, please stand up. Uh, in deference, the show, uh, honor to God's word, let's stand. It's Luke 17. We're going to read the first 10 verses. If someone wants to yell out what the page number is in the Pew Bible, that would be awesome. Thank you, Connor. 876. Hear this. Luke 17. This is the word of God. And he, that is, Jesus said to his disciples, temptation to sin The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 7, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is God's word. We'll pause there. You may be seated. Let's ask for his help. How about that? Yeah. Father, we do ask that you would help us, that your spirit... Holy Spirit would come to aid our reading and our reflecting, our understanding, uh, and in the week and in the day ahead, our application of your word. Give us faith and the boldness to, to exercise it. I pray that you would be pleased, you'd, on, you'd be honored to, to, to take away any distraction right now, uh, that we might focus on the, the clear uh, person and work of Jesus, our good King. In his name, amen. Here's the obvious. Uh, words are important. Words are are important and so is context whenever we're trying to understand uh, things. The words that are included here in verse 1 are very important because they immediately set before us a bit of understanding because it says there in verse 1, He, that is Jesus, said to his disciples. So in, in other words, there are other passages and places, multiple times in Luke in fact, where he's referring to, he's speaking to, Luke records the crowds or he is speaking to the religious leaders of the day, to the Pharisees. So the fact that this is written to disciples uh, is important. It's important in in part because if you're here today and and you're not a disciple, you're not yet a follower of Christ, I'm always delighted that you're here, uh, but I want to say to you that uh, one of the things that's important to bear in mind is what Jesus calls us to here uh, is to disciples. And so what what, what is here is not of first importance, or the primary for you, I, I want to distinguish between the foundation and the structure, and that's really crucial and important because um, you will frustrate yourself if you don't know uh, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you don't have the Spirit of God inside, then it it won't make sense and it won't be able to connect uh, in some ways to to real life. The picture here is of what uh, God. Requires not in full, but in part of Christians, disciples of Jesus with sin and confrontation and forgiveness and duty. And uh, and in fact, it, it, the frustration would come because we need the foundation of Jesus Christ and we need the, the, the spirit of God inside of us. Uh, so but that can happen today. Right. That you could you can become today, this very day, this very hour, a follower of him and surrender to him and ask for his mercy. Okay, so here it is. This is how I see us. Maybe it helps us see it. The three headings as we divide up uh, this portion. And they're listed there in the order of service. The first is a heavy warning. The second is a high calling beginning partway through through verse 3. And then the last few verses, 7 through 10, is a humble serving. uh, The service that we as disciples have. So first of all, these opening three verses here, a heavy warning. The imagery is of a death, a death. a, a most miserable death. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for one of our elders, Mark, who preached uh, last Lord's Day and uh, gave us the imagery of being in Wyoming. And, and no one, all of us die, but he said, you know, you, you definitely don't want to die being impaled by, what was it, a buffalo or something? Yeah, the, well, that's obvious, right? Yeah. Like, they're, like we all know we're going to die, and we, we'd like to die in a way that's a little more peaceful than that. And certainly not with a millstone and us going to the bottom of, of the sea. Uh, a gigantic stone, was, uh, a millstone, would, would have to be carried around with uh, the help of, of livestock to actually accomplish this. Imagine that. If, you, if Jesus is saying, if you lead people, uh, people find their way into sin. But if you're the one that's, that's tempting and leading them that way, then th- this is bad. This is a, this is a heavy warning. And I, I just realized the pun that I did not intend to be there. Uh, it, it's, it would be entirely inappropriate for us to make pun of this because there's nothing funny about the fact that Jesus is very stern here. That Jesus is very serious about the peril of sin and those who would prompt or lead others, even indirectly, into it. Now, before I say any more about the sternness of that, uh, that punishment that Jesus is saying... Don't miss the fact that he cares so much for even just one of his children. He refers to the little ones here. Other translations say the children. Whether that means a, a, a young believer or, or you know, uh, young children of a certain age, it, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the, the weight still, uh, you know, it, it still stands. It's a tender father who is protective and he's very serious about his children. And so too he's very serious about sin. Now, when the warning comes here, uh, when he talks about uh, that they would that they would come and they would cause one of these little ones to sin, the word there is scandalon uh, to scandalize, which which is to uh, it could be understood as to to trap someone uh, or to trip up someone. I think that's more of the essence uh, of what's conveyed here. That there's there's not necessarily a bold attempt, but but merely the, to trip someone up as though a stumbling block. Uh, for others, who does this apply to? Well, I think you would agree that Jesus has in view people who have influence, people who are leaders, people who are, are teachers that's that 's some of what people perhaps who have a degree of authority. I guess that would mean uh, me uh, that this applies to me uh, if I were to have a, a, a teaching or if I were to come to you and and purport ideas that weren 't based on god 's word that were to lead you into uh, into deception, or away from Jesus, or the hope of the gospel, then that's bad. That's horribly wrong and evil, God is saying. Not only in my teaching, but also if my conduct shows disregard for God's law, then others could trip. I think it also actually applies uh, to parents. When parents baptize their precious little children in, their ch- in our church they make promises, they, they, they vow, they, they ask for help from you as a church family to help them as they help guide our, our little ones. There's a, there's a precious responsibility that we have to lead our children to the gospel, to Jesus and his grace and truth. But what if you're neither a pastor or a parent? Or what if you're both? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's bad. You know, this is serious business. But even if you're neither a, a pastor or a parent this morning, look at verse 3 again. The opening of verse 3, what does he say? To, to all of us, pay attention to yourselves. Uh, other translations, I said, take heed, listen, dial in to yourself. All disciples are to take heed, to watch your life, to guard your, your thinking and your conduct. Are, are we serious about... The threat of of sin, then, and, and the threat that it has on our fellowship with God, and how that sin uh, hinders and harms other people, or at the very least, our fellowship with those people. Care for yourself. If you hear, if you're, if you're hearing me, care for yourself spiritually, walking in the light. But what happens when we sin? Not not if, but what happens when we sin, and when we fall even into Perhaps a pattern of that to a season where we're not walking in the light. What do I mean by that? Well, it's when someone is sowing seeds of, of gossip. And it, it, what does it do? It destroys relationship. It's when people live destructive habits that harm their own health. It's when people, when someone deceives, even in a small way, and then it just, it escalates. It leads to more and more lies. When people hunger for control or, Or or when one of us lusts for for pleasure, and then we end up using other people. There are others. Obviously, I could go on and on. You could too. You could illustrate this in many ways. Sin always harms. It it leads to death, ultimately. But it also threatens and, like I said, harms others. So there's this heavy warning, right? That's kind of out of the gates that that, uh, Jesus wants them to all hear. Now, here's the second thing. There's also a very high calling. Notice again, carefully, the language when Jesus gives these instruction. Let me read it again for us. Pay attention to yourself. Verse 3. Then he says, If your brother sins. Now let's just pause there. So who, who are we talking about, right? We're, we're not talking about uh, an acquaintance or someone that, uh, that you don't have any relational connection to or history with or, or trust with. This is someone that would call themselves a follower of Christ as well. So if it's got to be your brother. And then it says if your brother what? If your brother sins. It didn't say if he does something annoying. <laughs> or, or doesn't do something that you know, fits with your agenda. Or doesn't approach it with the right uh, method that you would use. Or the ways that you would employ. And so you need to go and confront them. No. There are offenses that are wise and well for us to simply overlook. But when there's a pattern of sin, the loving thing to do is to speak up. It is to, as he's saying here, to confront, to rebuke, to admonish. Sin is a deadly and destructive thing. It almost always is not just this one big colossal mistake over here. It's actually a long road of a small thousand bad choices and and unwise ways that we walk in. That we find ourselves there. So why do we confront and seek to show people their sin? Simply put, because we're told to here, but also because we are motivated by love. We care for people. Church neutrality and tolerance is not love. Let me say that again. It's a neutrality and tolerance it's not love. I didn't say it's bad sometimes, but it's, it's not to be confused with true love. One more passage that echoes this, this uh, as well is Galatians 6, when Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, Paul writes. But... Sometimes it gets a little convoluted. It's challenging when that's, that sin is, is something that actually affects us and harms us and intersects with our lives. It wounds us. Much could be said in this regard. But let me just make clear when it comes to forgiving people and the relationship that that has towards relating and trust. I'm not suggesting that we move ahead and, uh, and just forgive and, uh, and forget about it. Not hold people accountable when it comes to things like abuse in the church or in the home or in the community as if that was something we would overlook. It's not suggesting that at all. The condition here, as Jesus would lay it out, that, that we would be restored and forgive is repentance. That's when someone comes and to the best of our ability that we can discern, they take ownership, right? They, 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 they turn from their sin and they ask for help. They bring it into the light and they ask for forgiveness. And this is what Jesus is laying out like he's he's giving us even as we think about this in a corporate application, not just in our own individual lives and family, but as a church family, this is giving us a picture. It's my hope for our church where there are sinners who are instructed and rebuked with the hope of restoration and reconciliation. That's the goal in the glory of God and where their repentance is not met with scrutiny or bitterness or or it's met with forgiveness Is that possible? Well, I I trust that it is. If if Christ has called us to it, if he's indwelled us with his spirit, this is a picture of a loving community. It's my hope for our church. It's not going to make us a big church, but I pray that it'll make us a healthy one. A place where people, we as a people of God, are sensitive to sin, but we're not closed to grace. We're sensitive. This is not a phrase original to me. I liked it. It's a community sensitive to sin, but not closed to grace. Of course, that's easier said than done. I, I, I'll grant you that. As one commentator put, our problem with Jesus here, and this is, this is not easily digested. Maybe it is in your own mind, but it's in application on the ground. It's hard. What Jesus is calling to you here. But he says this, one commentator writes, our problem with Jesus' words here is that we're often too spineless to rebuke and too resentful to forgive. Let me say that again. We're too spineless to rebuke and we're too resentful to forgive. Jesus requires us of us both courage to rebuke and compassion to forgive. The calling to confront and, and to forgive people, it seems, if we're honest, so challenging and difficult that I think, it leads people, I, I think it leads people to where the disciples are in the next verse. Now, whether that's the intent or whether that's exactly what prompted them, I don't know. But verse 5, what did they say? What did, it's almost as if they can't help but say it. The apostles said to the Lord, verse 5, increase our faith. In other words, uh, we can't do what you just said, is what I'm imagining that they're saying to themselves and to him. By the way, I always love it when it says <clears throat> uh, the apostles said, Lord, increase our faith. Like, man, I feel a lot better about myself, right? I mean, remember you remember there were a few chapters back in Luke when the, the disciples that were closest to Jesus, like the original 12. They come and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Good. I'm not alone. OK, other people have struggled in this regard. Even the apostles, Lord, increase our faith. <clears throat> you know, the old adage, the Lord will never give you more than you can handle. Where's that in the Bible? I've been a student of the Bible for a number of years. Haven't quite come across it yet. But maybe you want to join me in the Community Bible Reading Journal. It's a great plan to make your way through the Bible. I've got extra copies right over here. Maybe we'll hunt that verse down. No, we won't find that verse. If you want to get a little closer to the sentiment of what's there, it's the Lord will give you a lot of things that you cannot handle without God. Him. Or maybe a better way of putting it is on your own. On your own. The apostles ask for something and then Jesus, as is his custom, right? He has a way of saying, well, let let me hear what your question is and what you think your need is. And then let me redefine and reshape it. Because he comes back and says, hey, listen, your problem's not your lack of faith because even if you have a tiny bit of faith, as in the a, a tiny the smallest known seed to them, the mustard seed, then he's saying you can take uh, this mulberry tree, which is not, I mean, this is, it's almost like a scene from I Know Harry Potter. It's like, oh, the mulberry tree comes up out of the ground and it flies over into the sea. It's not the point. The point is the impossibleness of you know, what you would conceive of this complicated root system being, being lifted up. Jesus is saying, it's not your faith. It is the object of your faith. The problem is that, that you have a tiny, you know, a tiny faith. It's a, You have a tiny view of God. I mean, it's not, it's not our faith that's the problem. It's the object of our faith in view. You don't have a great faith in a little God. You have a little faith in a great God. Faith is barely an instrument. It's a means. We trust in God. It's sometimes hard when you have lots of resources and money and know-how and connections and ambition and a good night's rest, whatever. We don't trust in formulas. We don't trust in money. We don't trust in our own merit. We trust in the God of grace and in the grace of God. Well, that leads to this last point, these last verses 7 through 10. If you do great things for God as a disciple or whatever you estimate to be that great thing, take heed. Let's say you take heed of yourself. You, you confront, you, you love, you forgive. If you do these things, great. But all you've done is your job. What's required of you as your duty? Don't be proud, he's saying in this last parable. This little parable that he spins out, he's saying, if you go that route, great, but don't be presumptuous and proud. Don't think that God owes you something. Now, even as we read this about servants and slaves, we have to do a bit of an epical adjustment because, I mean, in our sense, in the notions of slavery, of slavery, uh, it's it's you know just psychological noise. The word here in the Greek is doulos, which can be translated and understood entirely as a slave or as a servant. Now the Scripture makes clear in the in the the, the testimony of the whole of God's counsel that it's wrong, not only wrong but evil, for people to own others or to treat them as property uh, in any way, shape, or form, other than to treat them as the image of God. Uh, Worthy of dignity. But in those days, not all servanthood in the ancient Near East was based out of uh, of ownership. In fact, many people, if they were in a dire place, would would go into uh, an indentured servitude because they're trying to avoid. If they had a debt that they couldn't pay, you either go to debtor's prison or you start to work uh, for someone for money. So this, this servant would have been working for wages and compensation, maybe to get themselves out of debt. But what Jesus is saying here, that's the dynamic, that's the situation, is in this parable, he's saying, uh, will any of you, even in verse 7, he says, will any of you, if your servant does this? So he's, It's like, presumably, some of you already have servants, right? He, no one looked at each other and said, well, who here has servants, you know? Well, uh, we don't even know what he's talking about. No, he's saying, this is an arrangement, this is not, this is not even a wealthy master in the parable, because he only has one servant, and the one servant's job is kind of probably multifaceted. He's he's to be a, a shepherd or to take care of farming, and then at the end of the day, come in and, and tend to some house needs, and then they can go do their own thing. But Jesus is saying here, wouldn't it be so awkward and and backwards and upside down if that servant came in from the field, all filthy from you know from shepherding, let's say, and says just plops down and chills out, and with all his dirty clothes on, says, "How about tonight, you fix me something to eat?" But Let's do that. Let's do that. Excuse me? You're confused. No, the servants is to go and do their duty. They are a hired hand. One New Testament scholar, the commentator on this said, our attitude should be that we have only done our duty. Obedience is not a matter of merit, though God does honor it, but of duty. Let me say that again. Obedience is a matter of, is not a matter of merit, but of duty. We do not have, Bach goes on to write, we do not have the right to pick and choose what to obey. This text, however, should not be left by itself when it comes to the theme of service. The balance is important because the servant needs to appreciate that his duty, what his duty is. While God is clear that the service, While God is clear that service well done is honored by him, God rewards those who serve without thought of reward. Let me say that last part because I think it's important. And you think about your own experience in life. When you take steps of faith and obedience, do you say, well, I hope God's got a good plan to reward me on this one. Because you have completely misunderstood what it means to be a servant because God honors our service but in his own way, and his box says so well here, it's very clear, God rewards those who serve without thought of reward. In fact, we, we have no basis upon which to stand before the master and critically say, where's my extra credit? What's up with this? Instead, we should look in the mirror at ourselves humbly and say, actually, I've only done my duty. And in fact, what's the last verse right there of the parable? He says, it, it, we should say that we're just unworthy. We, we could have done more. We should have done more. With his help, with his strength. Oh, that's part of the problem, right? I've been doing this in my own strength, maybe. But to have the right perspective... One other Scottish minister, sorry, you'd think I was a Presbyterian or something. Uh, Andrew Bonard used to tell the story of a a Grecian painter back in the day who produced a marvelous painting of a boy who was carrying a a basket of grapes on his head. And it was so famous. It was so well-loved and appreciated that they took it out on display into the forum. And uh, it was so spectacular. It was so uh, well done, uh, the artwork, that the birds of the air (laughs) Uh, came and tried to pick at these luscious grapes or what they thought were grapes. Naturally, this painter, his friends began to heap on the congratulations and the praise for how awesome of a piece of artwork, but he was not satisfied. No, the artist, when asked, he replied, I should have done a great deal more. I should have painted the boy so true to life that the birds would not have dared to come near." Let's let's think about some points of application as we wrap up, okay? Maybe there's some business that you need to do vertically or horizontally. I'm going to venture to guess that you do, and I do too. Uh, I've even thought about it this week, about how to apply this to my life. So would you just listen to me, talk to me. Uh, all of us need repentance and faith. R- repentance... Here would look like turning from our sin and our unbelief, from our self-reliance, turning from resentment and turning to God. Perhaps there are patterns in your parenting and in your leadership that you need to abandon because it could cause a stumbling block for other people. Perhaps there's some bitterness that you feel towards God because you feel like he owes you something extra. But now you realize, wow, I was only doing my duty. Have mercy on me, Lord. To cling by faith is to is to back. Well, let's just back all the way up right into the cave with the old man of the earth and the the open hole. And you look at it and you say, God says, this is what uh, this is what obedience and faith looks like. There's the hole. Oh, man, I can't I can't I can't do that. I I can't step there. I can't go there. We need a full lit ladder. I need to know all the steps. I need to see the direction. No, it's a step of faith. Which, by the way, faith is not a passive thing. It is pushing us to depend. it, It involves letting go of control. But I know that I'm not alone in faith and obedience. I have the people of God. I have the word of God. I have the promises of God. I'm resting on the things of God to do what God has called me to do. His power, not mine. If you're not yet a disciple of Christ today, then again, I say repent and believe like I'm saying to us, to me. I said it earlier, your primary responsibility isn't trying to delve in on confronting and forgiving and, and doing these things of duty. It's to take the first step which is to come to the, to the feet of the master and take refuge in the Father and his mercy. For some of you, for the sake of peace, here's another point of application, I'm pivoting. For the sake of peace and love, you do need to speak the truth to someone about things you're concerned about, about things that are affecting your relationship with them. There are some people here today that need maybe today to speak the truth in love to another disciple. You may say, but I, I, I just love them too much to confront them. No, chances are you love them too little. Think about that. Think about that. Maybe you don't love them enough. Well, you may say, I'm not ready to do that. Okay, but that, if you're not quite ready to do that, it, you, it means that you don't have the liberty to go on perhaps saying things about them and gossip to others. It may mean because you're not willing to, to talk to them or talk to God about them or talk to God about helping you talk to them that you can't keep harboring and feeding resentment or bitterness toward them. I mean, you might be able to unfriend them on Facebook, whatever. Okay, you do your social media thing. I'm just saying, maybe there is something you need to sort out in a mature humble, loving, godly way. Some of you, before we come to the Lord's table next Sunday, need to do some business with some others. You might need to seek reconciliation with your brother or your sister, asking for forgiveness or asking for an apology. You need to ask God for help in doing that. In confronting and in forgiving, you need to ask for God's help. The other thing I would say is thank someone who has confronted you. Here's a great point of application. I heard this sermon this Sunday and I need to call you up this week. A dear friend, a brother, a sister in the Lord who at some point in your journey as a disciple has spoken the truth to you and it hurt. It was uncomfortable, but as much as it was hard for you to hear, it was hard for them to say. And so going back to our Old Testament reading in Proverbs 27, what does it say? Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I I actually like the NIV a little better. It says wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. If there's been someone in your life that's been an instrument of reconciliation. Would you thank them of restoration to your walk with God to walk in the light? Would you thank them? Look at Jesus. You know, we think of all the ways that Jesus has been offended. That we've ignored him. That we've rejected him. That we've rejected his generosity. We we have not used uh, the gifts that he gave us. Sinclair Ferguson writes, The oceans of Christ's grace pour over us. And as we swim there in that ocean... We discover that there are resources in the forgiveness with which we are forgiven in order that we may forgive others. That's supernatural. The last thing I would say is that God has given you, some of you who are disciples, not some of you, all of you gifts, abilities, talents, resources, and you don't need praise and applause, just do it. Encourage, serve, listen, pray, share the gospel, share your time, share your resources, shower compassion, be a glad servant. You were bought with the blood of Jesus. We're so clearly told in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. So honor God. Would you pray with me? I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to use a prayer that uh, our brother Joe Fersinetti shared with me yesterday. Father, you have called us, you've carried us, uh, you've anointed and empowered us by your Spirit. Now, would you help us to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling? Would you help us to be vessels useful to you, the master of the house? I pray that we would not only have strength, but also deep joy and delight in knowing your ways with which we are strengthened to walk in. I pray for peace on the path and great assurance in every step on this journey. We are in the grip of grace as we are held and supported by your righteous right hand. You make us to rest, lay in peace, to feasting and overflowing. No valley, Father, is too dark in light of your nearness. Have mercy, we pray. Through Christ, even now as we pray together as he taught his disciples,